It's not about legalism. That brings nothing but bondage. It's not about religion. Ditto. It's about do we know Jesus? Do we know our Heavenly Father? Do we love Him? Because out of that love, and as we get to know Him better and better, as our love increases for Him, we begin to understand His love for us. We get to know Him better. And out of that love for Him, everything else will fall into place as we just listen to the Holy Spirit guide our lives. You know, we can come to church regularly. I did that for a number of years. We can be in Bible studies. We can be on life groups. We can lift our hands and worship. We can see miracles. We can see signs and wonders. We can even hear God speak and still not really know God. We can just know about Him. I believe when you look at the statistics in America that they say 80% plus claim to be Christians, I believe the greatest percentage of that 80% know God, know about God. They don't know God. They know about Him enough that they believe that He exists. And that's it. That's not knowing God. I'm going to look at a couple examples in Scripture this morning. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And we're going to see that you can be around all that good stuff. Bible studies, Christian brothers and sisters. You can see signs and wonders. You can do all that and see all that. And yet, our life isn't changed because we don't know Him personally the way He wants to know us. Lifestyle matters in the kingdom of God. We are to be being transformed day by day into the image of Christ. The way we live our life is supposed to be a walking billboard for the kingdom of God. We know it's a process, and we're all somewhere on that road in the process, I hope, of becoming more Christ-like. It's a process that's not going to end in this life, but there should be a difference. We should not look like the world. We shouldn't live like the world. We shouldn't do what the world does. We shouldn't think what the things are happening in the world are acceptable if it's contrary to the Word of God, if it's contrary to what would be a bride and bridegroom relationship. We need to see if our life can't be changed and restructured as we surrender to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be talking about 2 Kings chapter 4 and 5 a little bit first. And if you're not one who spends much time in the Old Testament, I just got to tell you, there's some amazing stories in the Old Testament. They're just, they're, they're amazing. They're exciting. They're, they're so different than what we experience in our daily lives most of the time. I want to talk a little bit about a prophet named Elisha and his servant. Now, I'm going to pronounce his name Gehazi, even though that's wrong according to the, the, the Greek. They, it's, for them, it's something like Gehazi. I just can't say that right. So, anyway, Gehazi was his servant. Who is Elisha? Well, he was a prophet mentored by another prophet named Elijah that we sometimes get confused. They were powerful men of God. God spoke through them. God did miracles through them. They were really different in their ministries. 
Elijah would be kind of the John Baptist, John the Baptist type. You know, he kind of looked a little scary. He was a little bit blunt in the way he delivered his ministry. And he did amazing miracles. God spoke to him. Kings would come to him. And Elisha was being mentored by him. And Elisha, when it was coming to the end of Elijah's life, and it's just so interesting when you read this story, it's like Elijah knew God was going to come and take him away. Notice I didn't say die. He knew God was going to come take him away. And Elisha came to him, and when Elijah is going to where God is going to take him away, Elisha's following him. Elijah said, no, you just wait here. No, I'm not. I'm staying with you. And it finally gets to a place where they see some miracles. They, they cross a river, and he throws his mantle on the river. The river stops. They walk through. It's just a great story. And then Elijah asks Elijah, what would you like? What would you like? And he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want a double anointing. And Elijah says to him, you know what? If you see me depart, it'll be as you asked. Well, guess what? Here came a chariot and horses of fire from heaven, and away Elijah went and never died. God took him right into heaven. Elisha saw it. And if you go through and study the story in the life of Elijah, you'll discover his ministry lasted two times as long as Elijah's. And he did twice as many miracles in the Bible as Elijah did. That double portion came. And Gehazi is, my, is the focus of what I want to share. Now, Gehazi was Elisha's servant. You know, and this man of God, Elisha, again, kings would come to him. There'd be wars and the, the, the nations warring against him. The king over there would get mad because whatever he'd do, Israel already knew what they were going to do. And was, what's the deal here? They know our moves before we even do them. And some of the king's servants said, well, that's this Elisha guy. God's telling him what we're doing before we do it. And Gehazi, Gehazi knew this. He got to see this. He got to experience all of this. He really was in a position of, of uh, prestige almost. I am the servant of the prophet of God. When God spoke to him and Elijah would speak, Gehazi got to hear and see what was being said and see it being true. I mean, he was learning a ton of things about God. He saw demonstrations of power like we'd all like to see. Amazing things. Matter of fact, I'm going to share just a couple of the stories that he was involved with and what he saw. When Elisha would travel, one of the places he would stop and rest was, in the Bible it just says, a kind Shunammite lady and her husband. We don't hear too much about the husband. But this lady would feed him as he's traveling by, and finally they, they decide to fix a room up for him so he could stay there, he could eat, he could rest and be refreshed. And she was just a wonderful lady to Elisha the prophet. So when Elisha and Gehazi would come, they'd be ministered to and this had went on for a while, and finally Elijah says, you know, Gehazi, go talk to her and see what she would like. I would like to reward her. God would like to reward her. And he did this, and you know, really didn't need anything. And then Gehazi says, however, she has no children. She's barren. 
And then Elisha says, go get the woman. And he tells her, by this time next year, you will have a son. You will have a child. Of course, she can't believe it. Sure enough, a year later, there was a little boy in the house. And the boy grew, and the years passed. And one day when this young boy, this young man, was out in the field with his dad, it says something happened in his head. And he went home sick, and he died in his mother's arms. And the woman goes, you know what? We got, I got to go to the prophet. I got to go to Elisha. So she comes to the prophet, and when she gets there, she goes to throw herself at his feet and wrap her arms around the feet of the prophet, the man of God. And Elisha is called the man of God about 30 times in Scripture, the man of God. But as she comes to throw her arms around his feet to give her request, Gehazi steps in and it says he kind of grabs her and tries to pull her away. He doesn't understand the compassion of God. He doesn't understand the love of God. He has seen how God blessed this woman through Elisha. He's seen all this. He's witnessed all this. But it's almost as if he has this attitude. You know, I'm his servant. No one comes near him. No one touches him unless you come through me first. He just doesn't get it. He knows about God. But he doesn't know God. And Elisha sends the woman home. And he tells Gehazi, I want you to go, take my staff. And when you get there, I want you to lay the staff on the child, so this young man's head, young boy. I want you to lay it on his body, and he's going to be raised. He's going to awaken, be raised from the dead. Okay, so if you're a Gehazi, and you know God, and you just don't know about God, you've got the prophet, the man of God, who you've seen do miracles many, many times, give you his staff, you know that it's going to happen. But he had so little authority, even with the blessing of the prophet, he goes to this woman and nothing happens. I believe it's an indictment on the heart of Gehazi. Not an indictment against God, not an indictment against Elisha. He was in such a place that he didn't know God enough, even with that authority. And Elisha goes, and you need to read the story. It's really interesting how he goes about the process Life coming back to this boy, but it does. And Gehazi, he looks like the stranger in the story who doesn't know God. Another story in their life, Naaman. Naaman was a captain of the king's army. He was a valiant warrior, but it tells us he had leprosy. Not all, not all leprosy cases had the flesh falling off and rotting. Sometimes they would just be white with the leprosy. And Naaman had leprosy. And a servant of Naaman's wife says, there's this prophet. If Elisha were here, he could heal Naaman of this leprosy. Well, the king hears about this and he loads Naaman up with gold and silver. By our dollar amounts, it would have been in the millions. And then he threw in a little ten, ten changes of clothing just for good measure. 
And he says, Naaman, go to the king of Israel with all of this that you may be healed. And he goes and he goes to the king of Israel and the king of Israel just kind of slaps himself on the forehead and says, I don't know what to do or I don't know what you're talking about. And he, he, he goes into the whole grieving thing because he can't, can't meet the needs, can't minister here. And Elisha hears about this, that the king is in a bad state. And Naaman goes to, to uh, Elisha. And it says Elisha even stands at a distance. I don't know if it's because of the leprosy thing or not. But he says he stands at a distance. And Naaman tells him, and, and just saying, Gehazi standing there. He's with him. He's there all the time. He is right there. He's his servant. He doesn't leave his master. And, and, and Elisha just says, I want you to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times and your leprosy will be gone. Well, Naaman didn't like that. It's like, what's wrong with the rivers in my country? What's so special about this dirty river in their country? And one of Naaman's servants says, Come on, Captain. If he told you to do some crazy thing, give him all this money and you'd, be, you'd do it in a heartbeat. And he comes to his, his senses and he goes and he dips in the river seven times and he comes out with his skin new like a baby's skin. And he goes back to Elisha, and he wants to offer him this gift, gold, silver, change of clothing, and, and Naaman, and, and Elisha says, no, no, God has healed you, I want none of that, go your way, and he goes his way healed, and Elisha the servant, or Elisha goes to his home, his house, and Gehazi goes to his, supposedly, only he doesn't go to his. He knows the power of God. He knows how God speaks through the man of God, Elisha. He's seen the miracles and the wonders. And so what does he do? He sneaks away and he catches up with Naaman. And then he makes up a story. Some sons of the prophet have come to be taught and trained and we could really use some of the money and the clothing to take care of them. And Naaman, of course, is happy to give him. And Gehazi goes back. He goes to his home first. And then he comes to Elisha, and Elijah says, Gehazi, where'd you go? I mean, this is a guy that speaks as a mouthpiece of God, and Gehazi thought he could get by with this. So he does the only logical thing. He lies. I didn't go anywhere, Master. I didn't go anywhere. And Gehazi says, wait a minute. God showed me exactly what you've done. And because of your greed, you, will not, you not only have the money of Naaman, you now have the leprosy of Naaman. It will be with you and your family forever. And instantly, the leprosy came upon him. Gehazi knew all about God. He'd been around miracles and signs and wonders like we've never seen. But he didn't know God. Same thing can happen in our lives if we're not careful. One last example in his life. They're in a city. There's going to be a war. Another king is attacking Israel. And the Aramean king knew that Elisha was a problem. Can you imagine? One man, but he was the man of God, is a problem. So he says, we got to deal with Elisha before we can go to war and win this war because Elijah's telling him everything we're going to do. 
So they find out where Elisha is, and they go to the village, and they surround the village with chariots and horses, and it says a large army of men. And they move in during the night, and Gehazi wakes up earlier in the morning as the servant should. And he steps out of his house or tent, and he looks around, and all he sees are the enemy. The army of the enemy, the chariots of the enemy, the horses of the enemy. And he runs to the man of God and he says, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. You're not going to believe this. They've come for you. And of course he's thinking, they are come for me. I'm in trouble. And what does Elisha do? Elisha's response is, do not fear. Gehazi was instantly filled with fear. Living with, traveling with, working with the man of God, seeing all these miracles, signs and wonders, knowing that nothing, God just revealed everything to him. He knew about God. He didn't know God, so he's filled with fear. And all Elisha does is say, don't fear, for those that are with us are more than those who are with them. And I can imagine Gehazi going, are you crazy? Look around. Here you and I stand and there's an army. He didn't know God. So Elisha, first thing he has to do is take care of Gehazi. He has to deal with his fear first. And he prays for him. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And he opens his eyes, his spiritual eyes, and he sees. The mountains all around him are filled with horses and chariots of fire. And then Elisha just prays as the enemy advances. He said, Lord, blind them. And he blinded the whole army. And then it says, Elisha just led them to another country. Told them where they were at. And he left. And their eyes were opened. And it says they never attacked Israel again. But Gehazi... First, he has this attitude, this woman who has been blessed by God, who served them, his son, her son dies, Elisha's going to raise him to the dead, and he acts like, don't touch him. Then his greed manifests, the greed of Gehazi, and the deception, the lying. And then he's walking in fear. He doesn't know God. He knew about him, didn't know him. You know, could you imagine Gehazi sitting around with a bunch of his buddies telling stories? I'm the servant of Elijah. You want to hear what I've seen? Man, oh man, could he share a testimony. But the problem with him sharing the testimony, it wasn't his testimony. It was Elisha's testimony. A lot of us can spend lots of time talking about the wonderful thing God's done that we've witnessed and seen, but it's not your testimony. And part of the reason we don't have a testimony that God wants us to have is because we're living a life of someone who knows about God, but we don't know Him. And our life is not a representation of Christ. It's more a representation of the world than it is of Jesus. And that's not what God wants for us. He had this, Gehazi had this position, this noble position, if you would, probably envied by people all around him, But in spiritual things, he was blind. Didn't know God. I want to jumpstart all the way to the new, jump ahead to the the New Testament. One of most everybody's favorite disciples. Guess who? 
Peter. Peter, a fisherman called by God to be one of the disciples. Peter had been with Jesus. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing the sick. Every sick person they brought to him, he healed him. He calmed the stormy waters on the sea. He'd raised people from the dead. He'd fed thousands with almost nothing. He had walked on water, even invited Peter to join him. He'd healed Peter's own mother from a fever. And he'd sat at the front row of all of the most amazing teaching by the best teacher that ever walked the earth. Man, oh man, did he get to see and know a lot of things about God. But he was still in process of knowing God. And we see in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17, we read about an event where Jesus is visiting with his disciples and he says, you know, who do the people say that I am? And of course the disciples chime in, they think you're this guy, they think you're this guy, they think you're this guy, they think you're this guy. And he goes, no, no, who do you say that I am? What about you guys? Who do you say that I am? I just would paraphrase that and say, do you know me? Or do you just know about me? Can you just tell stories about what I've done? Or do you know who I really am? And Peter chimes in, bless his heart. You are the Christ. He nails it. The Son of the living God. You can almost see Peter's going, wow, I wonder where that came from. But Jesus kind of jolts him just a little bit. He starts out, blessed are you, Peter. But that didn't come from you. That came from the Holy Spirit. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because he didn't get it. They didn't get it. But he spoke these words. And you know what? It doesn't take very long at all. Just a few verses later in chapter 16, Jesus, after he tells them this, he starts telling them what's going to happen to him. I've got to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I rose again. And good old Peter as soon as the opportunity presented itself, it says he kind of took Jesus aside and started to lecture him. Great move, huh? You ever lectured God? We ever tell him that our way's better? And Jesus says something amazing to him, and I think a lot of times we don't quite understand it because of the way we interpret the Scripture, the way it was translated, maybe. But in verse 22 and 3, this is where Peter says, God forbid that any of that should happen. It'll never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's intentions or God's interests, but you're setting them on your own interests. Now the word Satan there, one of the primary definitions, even in the, in the name of Satan, is simply adversary. 
So really what he is saying in a sense is, get, me, get behind me, you adversary of what I'm supposed to do. That attitude that you've got, what you're speaking, is a stumbling block in me carrying out the Father's plans. Peter, I have a role for you. I have a destiny for you. But I have my own destiny. I'm going to go to the cross. And you are nothing but an adversary of the Father's plans right now. You don't know God. You don't know Him well enough yet. You know about Him. You've been there. You're one of my inner core. But you don't know Him yet. Look how you're responding. It'd be nice if it stopped there with Peter, but Peter, you know, he goes on to confront Jesus at the foot washing of the Last Supper. No, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. That didn't go well. He insists that he's never going to leave Jesus. Nothing bad's going to happen to you as long as I'm around, and if it does, I'm going down with you. And he turns around and denies him three times. He even gets in an argument with the other disciples about who's the greatest amongst us. And you can see where that would all happen, right? In the natural mind. The mind of one whose interests are focused on man's interests and not on God's interests. We often do the same thing. We start to describe and define God's destiny for us in our terms. The way we want it to look. You know, look what Jesus went through to fulfill his destiny. Look what those disciples went through to fulfill their destiny. Look what the spiritual giants in, in, the, in history had to go through to fulfill their destinies. Pastor Bob is teaching through Hebrews 11, the, the, the heroes of the faith. Look what they went through. At the end of that list of names, it says, and the others. And it says they were sawn in half, they were thrown in prison, they were beaten. Look what they went through to fulfill the destiny God had in their lives. Our destiny may not always be a smooth road. But if we know God, our faith and trust and confidence in the path that we're on will still leave us in peace. There will still be a joy in the Lord as we live out our life. Walk it out. So how about us? How about you and me? How in the world does our life look? Does it look like a life that knows about God? Or does it look like a life that knows God? I certainly would hate to have it said, and I know I've probably earned it many times, but I'd hate to have it said like it was said to Peter, you're a stumbling block, Mike. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting them things setting your mind on the things of man. More specifically, you're setting your mind on what you want. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be that. I would guess most, most of us here don't want to hear that or be that. But do we live the life that God has called us to for those that know Him? Or do we live a life that we want to live simply knowing about God? We can speak the language. We can talk the talk. But are we truly walking the walk that God has called us to? In John, 1 John chapter 2, 
Because when I get to that place, okay, how do we live? And right away, there's a tendency, especially if we, we have uh, uh, the intentions of trying to change our life. We got the devil whispering right away in our ear. And we start to get this great big long list of do's and don'ts. And we start to try to live under the law. That's not knowing God. That's not who He is. So we don't want to just go there. There are things we need to do and things we shouldn't do, granted. But that's where our mind can go if we're not careful and really know God. In 1 John 2, verses 3-6, through it says, By this we know that we have come to know Him. Yeah, there's an answer coming. If we keep His commandments. And then I go, oh no. That sounds like law to me. Legalism to me. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. And I believe that is the key segment of that whole verse. The love of God being perfected. The love of God maturing in us. It's not the list of do's and don'ts. It's do we have the love of God in us, growing in us, maturing in us. The love of God... In Him, the love of God has been truly been perfected. That word perfected means made mature. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought to himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The commandments thing. I want to get past that commandments thing so we don't get into that whole performance mentality. I want us to look at Matthew, Mark 12, 28. Jesus is being questioned and they say, what commandment is the foremost of all? Then Jesus answered, the foremost is. And I believe these are the commandments that is being talked about. If we know God, these are the commandments. Because if we have these two commandments in our heart and we begin to live it, all those other things that we look at as do's and don'ts just fall into place. Because we are being transformed into the image of Christ by the love of God. And he says those commandments are this, love the Lord your God. The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. These supersede them all. They all fall right under them. When we love the God, love God, the Lord our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our sight, it will change the way we live because we honor the one we love. We want to honor the one we love because he loves us so much. And he loves our neighbors more than we could possibly imagine. And if we love him, we'll love them too. So the way we live, our life testimony changes. If we really know him, we will walk like he walked. And again, it's a process. But where are we in that process? And are we focusing our minds on the things of God or the things of man? As we truly know God, as He really is, as this loving God, our natural response out of the love that we have for Him and the love for others will change us. It doesn't become this arduous task that we've got to try to accomplish with a checklist of did I, did I, did I. You just do. You just do. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and guess what? There's an amazing fruit deposited in us. And that fruit 
It's Christ-likeness. How do we do it? We'll read John chapter 15, verses 15 through 17. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I cho- did not ch- but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, I appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and the fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then he completes that thought with, this, this I command you, love one another. It's all about the love of the Lord. It's all about the love of God in us. And as it matures in us, our love for Him grows and matures. We will love our neighbors. And our life will, we will not want to do anything that dishonors God who loves us so much. And there are countless blessings and promises that are ours for those who obey God. However, I'm practical. So we're going to look at a couple of scriptures that get really practical about what this might look like. First one's in Colossians 3, verse 12. So those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, and now it starts to describe us, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, also you should. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. As we know him, we become more like him. Everything in that verse would describe our our Heavenly Father. And it will just come out of us as the Holy Spirit leads us and we surrender to the Holy Spirit as the love of God permeates us. Our lifestyle should be that as a friend of God. He calls us his friend, a lover of God, a true Christian. But you can't hardly address this issue without going to Galatians chapter 5. And those of you that are familiar with Galatians chapter 5 have probably been waiting for me to get there or hoping I wouldn't. In verse, chapter, Galatians 5, verses 16 is where I'm going to start. It says this. Walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. And depending on your translation, the one I have I think lists 17 different things. And it finishes by saying, and other stuff like that. Most of us have lived a lifestyle that contains a whole lot of these 17 different things. Hopefully, we're not living that lifestyle if we're born-again Christians who love the Lord. Adultery, fornication, any type of sex outside of marriage is called fornication. 
uncleanness, anything that goes against purity, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery or witchcraft, hatred, contentions, arguments, fighting, jealousies, envy, outbursts of wrath, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, it's all about me, dissensions, disunity, splits, heresies, envy, murder. I'm not sure he meant to put drunkenness in here, but it's there. Revelries, crazy parties that have nothing to do with honoring anything or anybody. And then it goes, and all alike. Which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ouch. We're in process. But when we know that those things are in our lives and we know that they break the heart of God, they know that we are hurting God's heart as well as hurting ourselves. We want to do something different. And it will happen. Don't let Satan judge you right now and start condemning you right now. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you of any of those things, praise God. Respond with confession. Don't let the enemy accuse you. The best way to not let the enemy accuse you is close the door to those things in our life. And whatever's been in our past, if you're a Christian, it's been forgiven. That's what the life of the world looks like. He calls it the life of the flesh. Thank goodness it didn't stop there. In Galatians, starting at verse 22 of chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit. And I just, I got to remind us, it says fruit. Singular, fruit. We usually call them the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Like we can have some of them, but we don't have the rest. That's not true. They're all there. If I have the Holy Spirit living in me, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is made up of this package. They're all there. The reason we sometimes don't think they're all there is because we aren't very good at letting that particular fruit manifest. Our flesh gets in the way. Patience. Whoa, man, I'm in trouble. God, give me that fruit. Mike, it's there. Crucify your flesh. Honor me. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, the joy of the Lord. We're not going to always be happy. It's the joy of the Lord, the joy of knowing who I am in Christ. No matter what comes down the road, that's who I am. Joy, peace. Ever seem like there's no peace in your life? Well, there may not be in the circumstances surrounding us, but this piece is talking about the peace that we now have in God. There is no longer war or enmity between me and the Lord. I am at peace, love, joy, peace. I can live in that peace when I don't let the chaos in the world get to me and distract me and I get my eyes back on who I am in Christ. Long-suffering. That one doesn't hurt me quite as much because it doesn't exactly sound like patience. But that's what it means. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And the last one just really hurts. Self-control. 
Because the flesh wants to be in control all the time. The Spirit, my Spirit in union with the Holy Spirit, or the flesh, one or the other is going to direct our lives. He says, against these things there's no law. And those who are Christ and who love Him have crucified the flesh with all its passions, with all its desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's the kind of life that will honor God. That's the kind of life a Christian should live if they know God and they don't just know about Him. I'm going to close with an illustration that uh, I came across just this morning. And... I think most of us can to attest to this in our own lives. We've seen it, experienced it. But it's this. The title of this little article is Research Shows That Human Beings Can't Walk a Straight Line. Close your eyes. You cannot walk a straight line. You can't swim in a straight line. And believe it or not, they've done all kinds of research on this. And they've been doing research on this for over 100 years. The conclusion of a lot of the scientists are that there is something wrong with us that we cannot walk a straight line. Every trial, every test, they would blindfold the people and they would have them walk more than a few feet. And without exception, they couldn't do it. Without exception, their path would go over here and over here and over here. I mean, I can't swim very well. But I remember trying to, because I can't swim very well, I was going to back float across the lake. We live on the lake, by the way. You know, because you can't swim very well, you've only got so much in you. So I'm just back floating like crazy, thinking, this is going pretty good. And then I kind of stop and look around, and, you know, I'm trying to go there, and I'm way over there. And I don't care how many times I would do that, every time I'd stop, I was off track. I remember being a farm boy and my dad teaching me how to plow at the old Minneapolis Moline U and the three-bottom plow. Mike, just go straight. Can you, do I need to set the land for you? Can you go out and make the first round? I can do that, Dad. You know, jeez. So I'm plowing the rest of the day like this. And Dad comes at noon, and I'm really impressing him. There goes that rejection thing again. Science proves we can't do it. But what they found out is that everybody thinks they're walking a straight line. Close your eyes and walk, and I can ask you, you're walking a straight line? Absolutely. Then they open your eyes, and you're not anymore close. But we think we're walking a straight line until they remove the blindfold. There seems that there's a flaw somehow in us, or the way we're worked, created, that there is a profound inability to walk in a straight line. According to the research, they discovered something. There is only one way to walk in a straight line. And that's by focusing on something ahead of us, like a building, a landmark, or a mountain. Or if you're plowing with a three-bottom plow going about one mile an hour, you focus on a fence post. But you've got to focus on something that's out there so that you can go in a straight line. If you fix your eyes on something ahead of you, you can go in a straight line. And we can avoid all that normal crookedness But without these kinds of external cues, it seems like 
it's impossible to go straight. And I thought it was really cool when the scripture came up this morning that Evan shared in Bible class from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 11 lists all these heroes of the faith. It lists them one after the other, talks about what they did and what they went through. And then it starts in chapter 12. It says, therefore, therefore, because of all these that have went before us, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not go weary and lose heart. If we want to live a life that's a testimony, that's an advertisement, that's a billboard for God, we have to know him. And when we know him, if we keep our eyes focused on him, not the world, not our circumstances, not our feelings, not our emotions, not even our goofy thoughts, but on the truth and on Him, we can walk that path that will bring glory and honor to Him. And it will sustain us in the most difficult times. The most difficult times. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for each one of us here, God. I pray that you would continue to reveal to us by your Spirit what only you can do with love. Show us those things in our lives that, that are things of the flesh. Show us those things in our lives that are, have our interests in mind and not yours. God, I pray you would show us these things and then you would grant us the grace to confess them and to turn away from them. And to be led by your Holy Spirit to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, no spirit of condemnation or legalism, religion could settle in. But God, that we would just pursue you to know you, to know who you are, to know your love for us better in greater ways. God, give us, give us the opportunities to demonstrate that love to those around us. Father, that we can see people set free from the things of the world, set free from the lusts of the flesh, see them born again by the Spirit of God, and watch you grow the fruit of your Holy Spirit in each life. But start with ours. I pray this, Lord, for your glory and for your honor in your Son's name. Amen.